0: Our passage today, probably along with John 4, which we had last week, these are two of the most wonderfully crafted stories in all of the gospel. Last week was Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And these are these wonderful narratives with these very colorful characters who talk to Jesus, who who draw you in. Whether it's the Samaritan woman at the well and the repartee back and forth that she has with Jesus, or this man born blind who... Uh, talks back to the Pharisees in a way that makes them quite upset. These are compelling stories filled with compelling characters, and they have much, much to teach us. And so there's three things, just three aspects that we're going to look at in this story. And, and in the interest of time, Eric didn't read the entire 48 verses of chapter 9, but most of the story is going to be woven throughout what I'm going to go on to say here. And so we're we first going to look at what we learned from the Pharisees and the disciples. This is really the negative, the what not to do lesson from this passage. And then we're going to see what we learn about really genuine Christian character from the man born blind. And lastly, what does this story reveal to us about the character of the God that we see in Jesus? So first, the cautionary tale from the Pharisees and the disciples. Second, the the positive lessons that we have to learn from the man born blind. And lastly, the revelatory lessons that we have about Jesus. So are you ready Yes, there we go. Okay, that's let's go. This is, you know, a little more interactive than we normally are comfortable with, but, but that's okay. All right, so let's go. So first, what not to learn from the disciples and the Pharisees. The, the disciples and Pharisees both have something in common in this passage. And that thing that they have in common is they both see a connection between sin and the man born blind's predicament. In verse 2, Jesus is leaving the temple. After he's had to, in, in chapter 8, uh, Jesus almost gets killed. Um, that's, that's kind of the, the, the punchline. There's this very heightened tension, and, um, and, and the religious leaders pick up these stones. They're going to kill him, but Jesus is able to just walk out. So it's just been this incredibly intense, almost life-ending showdown that Jesus has had. And so he walks out of there, and, and he walks out of the temple, and Jesus notices this man born blind. And his disciples, they, they notice this man too. And so his presence leads them to ask Jesus a question. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So that's the disciples' question. What's the connection between someone's sin and this man's, uh, this man's predicament? And later on, after he's regained his sight, and he's had this very tense and contentious back and forth with the Pharisees. They reviled him, it says. And then they said, you were born in utter sin. Meaning the fact that you were born blind means that you were born a vile sinner. And so what the disciples and the Pharisees have in common is that both of them want to draw a clear, straight, bright line. Between this man's physical condition and sin. And sin in this case is that someone has broken the moral law. Someone has broken God's law. And so this man is blind because someone did something bad. And he is being punished for it. The disciples want to know who broke the moral law. So that God justly punished him by making him be born blind. Was it his parents or him? And the Pharisees don't even ask the question. After they have this conversation with him, they know the answer. It was his fault. He was born in utter sin. He's to blame for his former condition. So in the minds of the disciples and Pharisees, there's a direct connection between physical disability and one's moral culpability. And while it's crass, you know, as we read this, we go, why are they asking this question? It it makes sense because all of us, want to know the answer to that question why 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 is the world the way it is why do some people suffer why do bad things happen why are some people born and face you know severe difficulties why does tragedy strike some people and not others there has to be an answer it can't just be bad luck or blind fate there's something terrifying about a universe in which stuff like this just Happens and there's no rhyme or reason to it. And so, one answer to that why question that's been popular throughout the ages is it's the person who it's happening to, it's their fault. They did something to deserve this. Blame the victim. If you read the book of Job, it's basically what Job's friends, you know, his quote unquote friends, his companions did. They were looking for various ways to hold Job accountable. For the litany of horrible things that had happened to him. That's the ancient concept of of karma. That suffering in this life is the result of misdeeds that one has committed in a past life. It's even in the Ten Commandments. You know, God says that God will punish the sins of parents to the third and fourth generation. And so we want to understand why this world is so full of suffering and brokenness, and it is so much easier if we can put the blame on someone. And if you're a religious person, this can also help us take blame off of God. It's not God's fault. He's right in doing to this person what's happened to them. He was right to let this happen to this man because either his parents sin or he sin. Now, this idea of, and he's born blind, so the fact that it's this man's fault is kind of. Perplexing, because what could he have done before he was born in order to merit being born blind, to be punished for his sin? Uh, but there were some ideas about why this or how this could happen in the ancient world. There were those who, who followed Plato and had this idea in the pre-existence of the soul. And so your soul uh, pre-exists. Uh, your, it's basically instantiation in your body when you're born. And so your soul was out there, and then you're born, and your soul and your body come together. Uh, So somehow your soul, in in its pre-existent state before your birth, did something bad. It's sin. And so that merits God's punishment after you're born. Other ideas about, you know, kind of prenatal sin come from a a creative reading of the story of Jacob and Esau. You know, those twin brothers who were struggling for, for prominence in their mother's womb. And we remember that on the way out, you know, Esau was born first, but Jacob was grasping at his heel as he was being born. And so there's this idea that that there's some kind of moral agency that even, you know, unborn children have for which God can hold him or her to account. And unfortunately, this link between sin, disability, and suffering, it, it has not been left in the, you know, theological scrap heap of history. Not even by Christians who ought to know better. As I was reading for this passage, I read this article that was written by a woman who, she's a Lutheran pastor now. And she was born with only one arm. And her parents were very faithful, church-going people. You know, these were good, church-going folks. And so, uh, shortly after she was born, they brought their beautiful, one arm baby daughter to worship with them. And after the service, a, a woman confronted her mother and said that God was punishing her, or she was punishing her husband, or some combination of them. For something they had done by giving them a daughter with one arm. where You go, where did these people come from who would say something like that? And you know, when a disaster strikes, you can be sure that some televangelist type will rush to the scene to put his foot in his mouth. I mean, you could, the examples can multiply almost endlessly. Pick any disaster at random, and you'll find this kind of victim blaming going on. Uh, earthquake, 2010. Haiti, 100,000 people die. This is a tragedy, poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, Pat Robertson, a frequent offender in this category, blamed voodoo, that people did voodoo on Haiti. So that's why 100,000 people had to die there. And even this past week, uh, it was serendipitous. As I was reading for this passage, we had Gloria Copeland, who she's the wife of uh, Ken Copeland. He's a famous prosperity gospel guy, kind of a word-faith, blab-it-grab-it preacher. And uh, she said, You know, you're hearing all about this flu epidemic that's so bad all over the country. She's like, You don't need the, you don't need the flu shot. Jesus is our flu shot. It's not going to get you this kind of idea that, that if you're a faithful, believing Christian, nothing bad's going to happen to you because God desires health and wealth and prosperity for you. So if you get the flu, it's your fault. And I look at my own wife who was lying. In bad, you know, and I 'm sure so many of you in this could Bridget, you 've had the flu, Mike, you 've had the flu. So not only did Amy not get her flu shot, but apparently you didn 't get your Jesus inoculation either. it 's your fault. it 's your fault, Bridget. your fault, Mike. don 't look for any sympathy for me. Again, all of this comes down from the desire to blame someone for the sad and oftentimes sorry state of this world. We want it to all make sense, and so it satisfies our sense of justice if people's suffering can be pinned on their own failings. But what does Jesus have to say? So after the disciples, they ask him this question. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind? Jesus' response is this. It was not this man that this man sinned or his parents. Could he be any more clear in this moment? And he goes on to say, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And this is where translation really matters. Because if you were to read this passage in the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV, it says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind. That's the supplied part that's not in the text. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. So this sounds like God made him be born blind so that Jesus eventually could perform this miracle in his life and show awesome God's power is. Yes. But that's not what the text says. It says neither this man nor his parents sinned full stop. And then Jesus says that God's ultimate purpose for this man, regardless of his condition, is to reveal his works in him. And so the right question then isn't who is to blame. But rather, how can we bless? Given anyone's condition, not who can we blame, but how can we bless them? It's not to look at the past, but it's to look to where we are and toward the future. Right? The right question isn't who can we blame, but how can we bless, and not how can we find fault, but how can we show God's favor? And Jesus continues by saying that we must do the works of God while it is still light, and I am the light of the world. And on this part of the passage, uh, Leslie Newbegin, who wrote a wonderful commentary on on John, and he was a 20th century missionary and and a scholar uh, and an ecumenical statesman. He's absolutely spot on, he says. But if a good reason could be found for evil, either the evil is not evil or the reason is not good. The attempt to make sense of a world which is under the power of sin and death by probing back to its antecedents is doomed to frustration. The only thing which can make sense of a dark world is the coming of the light. And the light does not come from below, but from above. And not from the past, but from the future. We can make sense of a dark world only by allowing the light to come in. By turning to the light. And by believing in the one who comes as the light of the world. This is the work of God. To which I would only add that besides turning to the light and and welcoming in the light, and believing in Jesus, who is the light of the world, we also make sense of the world as we reflect the light of Christ back out into the world. And so the lesson we learn from the disciples and the Pharisees is is don't look to blame, look to bless. All right, so the next thing we're going to look at are the, the positive lessons that we have to learn about Christian character from the man born blind. And the first thing that we learn from this man is that he is an exceedingly honest person. He doesn't tell a lie even when it would have suited him and helped him to do so. Whenever he's asked what happened to him, he says the the shortest, truest thing that he can say. That's a good lesson for all of us. What's the shortest, truest thing I can say in this situation? So his neighbors ask him, they say, How is it that you can see now? And he tells them what happened, what Jesus did, without any interpretation of what these events might mean. Just the facts. But even though he cannot tell a lie, he understands that not everyone is entitled to the entire truth. Because Jesus, in making this mud paste on the Sabbath, had had broken the commandment, the interpretation of the commandment for Sabbath rest, from the Pharisees' perspective. And one of the activities that was considered work on the Sabbath was kneading. And so that's what spitting into dirt and making mud would have been considered. That was work. That was needed. And this was commonly understood to be forbidden. And especially Jesus wasn't justified in doing this because it wasn't a life or death situation. I mean, he was just blind. It could have waited till the next day. And so when he's healed, I, his neighbors hear the story... And they go, okay, this is weird. This has never happened before. We ought to ask some people who know what's up and can kind of understand what God might be up to here. And so they're by the temple. So there's this party of Pharisees and, and Jewish religious scholars and leaders coming out. And so they asked him, what happened? Explain this. How do we explain this? This has never happened before. But this man has been sitting begging by the temple gate. Surely he's heard the commotion. He's aware that Jesus was almost stoned. And so he knows that this is not a fair investigation. This is a tainted investigation into what has happened and so when they ask him what how he was healed he doesn't include every little detail he says jesus put mud on my eyes and i washed and i see he didn't include that earlier detail about jesus is the one who made the mud and then put it on his eyes and i think that this is a very telling omission this man understands that Those who the chapter before were about to kill Jesus are not entitled to information that they can use to hurt him. It's an important lesson that while we ought to always be truthful, we should never be careless with the truth. Because we've all been told information that if we shared it, would be hurtful. Like, oh, how was the show? Uh, Yeah, he said your band was terrible. Or, you know, that sermon was just a little bit too long. Uh, Those things might be true. But to be truthful means to have discretion and discernment. It means that we're delicate. It doesn't mean that we never have hard conversations and tell hard truths, but that we're discerning and we're delicate with the truth. And none of this takes away from this man's integrity because he guarded the truth not to protect himself, but Jesus. And so when they say, oh, Jesus couldn't be from God because he broke the Sabbath and there's disagreement, and they say, Well, what's your opinion? He shares it. He answers truthfully. He says, he's a prophet. And when he's interrogated a second time, the Pharisees and religious leaders say, give glory to God. Which this was an idiomatic expression that meant basically, we've reached our decision, we've reached our verdict, so you need, whatever comes next, is a true statement that you need to agree with. So they say, give glory to God, a.k.a. agree with this thing that we're about to say. Co-sign it. Agree with us. This man is a sinner. And remember, these are the same people who were just about to stone Jesus a few verses before. And this man, he cannot tell a lie at this moment. He doesn't say, well, I know that Jesus isn't a sinner because he's never met him. But he does say, here's what I can say. Before I was blind, but because of Jesus, now I see. And he can tell them something else based on his own reading of the scriptures or his understanding of the scriptures and his understanding of the story of God. It's clear that God never listens to sinners qua sinners. And here Jesus has done something that no one has ever seen or heard of before. You read the Bible up to this point, no one's ever healed someone born blind until Jesus. And the prophets promise in several places that one of the signs of God's kingdom breaking into the world, of God setting the world right, is going to be that the eyes of the blind will be open. And so he's got his experience, and he's got scripture, and he puts those together, and he can't call Jesus a sinner. He can't denounce him because he can't deny what's happened to him, nor can he contradict the very word of God which has promised such things. And he can't tell a lie, even though at the end of the day, his truthfulness causes him to be cast out. The idea here is, you know, excommunication, being shunned, being excluded from the community. And so he told of the truth about Jesus, even though it was very costly to him. Might the same be true of us. And another thing we learn from this man is the power of simple obedience to the word of Christ. Take a closer look at verses 6 and 7. It says that Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And what's most interesting about what happens here isn't what Jesus does or even what Jesus says. It's what he doesn't say to the man. Notice he doesn't tell him that he's going to heal him. He doesn't tell him that when you wash, this is going to restore your sight. This man is given a simple command. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man obeys, and he's healed. And so when Jesus issues a command, he doesn't ask why. He doesn't say, how is this going to work? He doesn't say, what's going to happen to me? He hears, he obeys, he's healed. And so might we too learn the power of simple obedience to the Word of Jesus, might we not always be asking, "Well, Lord, what's in it for me?" Might we say, "Here I am, Lord, send me thy will be done." And the last thing we learn from the man born blind is that faith is often a progress a, pro- a progress. It takes place in, in stages. Not all of us have a Damascus moment where the scales fall from our eyes and we get it. So, when he's first asked about how he was healed, the man born blind says, Well, the man Jesus told me. That's stage one. Jesus is just a guy, maybe a great guy, but a mere mortal nonetheless. And many people stay in stage one, but not this man. And so, when he's asked by the religious leaders for his opinion on who he thinks Jesus is, he says, Well, he's a prophet. Step two, this man born blind is beginning to see things more clearly. To acknowledge Jesus as a prophet meant that he saw him as a messenger from God, right? Someone with a divine mission and a divine message. He's getting closer. So at first we might acknowledge Jesus as a a great man. Then we might come to accept him as a holy man, you know, like one of the other figures from the world's great religions. And then in his argument with the Pharisees, he goes as far to say, you know, they say, well, Jesus is a sinner. And so this man says, no, 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 this can't be the case. God listened to him. And so Jesus is from God. Step three, because if he weren't from God, he wouldn't have performed this unprecedented miracle. And so here we're seeing this rapid ascent up the ladder of faith. The man, Jesus, a prophet, one from God. He's so close. And so then Jesus seeks him out and asks him the final question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And again, this guy is honest, so he cannot tell a lie. He doesn't just say simply, yes, I do. He says, who is he that I might believe in him? The great 20th century Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, had this to say on this moment of decision. The Son of Man is the title of the Messiah, both as fulfilling the divine intention for humanity and as reigning with divine glory. This man who has confessed that Jesus is from God, will he go further and put his whole trust in the Son of Man? Yes, if he knows where to find him. In other words, he trusts Jesus enough to put his trust where Jesus shall point him. Then Jesus points to himself. In the King James words, seen him hast thou. This man has not had time yet to see many people. The son of man is one of the few whom he has already seen and is now talking with him. He said, I believe, Lord, and worshiped him. So wherever you are in in the process of faith, whether you're on the first rung or, or you're right, almost there. I pray that when you're faced with this question, do you believe, do I believe, when face to face with this Jesus, may you too and may we all bow down and surrender our lives to him. So that's what we learn from this man, what it means to live with truth and and integrity, what it means to obey simply, and what it means to progress in faith step by step. And lastly, I want us to see what this passage reveals to us about Jesus. And in order to do that, uh, we have to look at the, the last three verses in the reading. So verses uh, uh, 35 to 38, which I am going to read now. And so this is right after he's been expelled from the synagogue. And so Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when they found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You now have seen him. In fact, he is the only one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And so there's three beautiful things that we see about Jesus in this passage. And the first one is that he notices the hurting. When Jesus left the temple, after facing this hostile opposition, men ready to hurl stones at him and crush him to death, immediately after that, when Jesus left the temple, what's the first thing that happened, verse 1. It says, Jesus saw the man who was born blind. Wherever people are hurting, Jesus sees them. It's a beautiful savior. Second, Jesus seeks the outcast. So immediately after he is cast out, Jesus hears about it and he finds him. Again, William Temple. The man who is driven out by the Pharisaic court is not left to wander as an outcast. Jesus found him. The man did not find Jesus. Jesus found him. Him That is the deepest truth of Christian faith. Jesus found me. Our fellowship with him is rooted in His compassion, as we said in our, or we heard in our words of encouragement earlier, The saying is true and worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus found me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. That's John 9, right there. And here's the last thing we, we, we learn from our passage about Jesus. He is worthy of worship. When the man learns who Jesus really is, he falls down at his feet. And so when we think about worship, it can kind of be a strange thing sometimes to, to think about and talk about. Why do we sing songs to and about this guy You know, uh, is worship just music? Is it the whole service? What does it mean to worship? Well, here's a definition of it right here. Worship is falling down at the feet of Jesus in utter awe and gratitude because of who he is and what he's done. And so when we understand just who Jesus is, that he sees the hurting... That he takes what's broken and sees it not as something he has to explain away, but as the raw material for showing the glory of God. That he brings light to darkness. That when we've been rejected and cast away, he comes and finds us and welcomes us into his presence. When we understand all that, we are so utterly overcome that, you know, raising our hands or our voices or offering our hearts or our praises or our prayers or our money or our lives seem like nothing at all. Worship simply means that he is worth it. He's worth everything. And there's nothing that I can add to that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.